invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 for our Old Testament lesson. We actually already heard the first two verses from this chapter in the Declaration of Pardon, but we'll read verses 3 to 11. Isaiah chapter 40, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together from the mouth, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We'll go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. Read the first 12 verses. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, and Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, this is God's word. Let's go before the Lord and ask that he open our hearts to understand the scriptures. Our gracious God and Father, we confess that apart from the work of your spirit, we would be blind and remain blind to the truths that are so clearly given in your word. 
We pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, that we might be diligent to believe and to do according to all that you have commanded and promised. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how do you prepare for the end of the world? How do you prepare for the return of Christ? I think there's been a lot of talk in recent years, even in our own circles, over the church's mission in this present age. What is it that we're supposed to be doing? You know, some have suggested that it's found in, you know, and I quote, redeeming the culture, right? as if our top priority is found in redeeming art, music, and the sciences. Others, however, claim that it is found in uh, the church's mission to be exercising dominion over creation, for some by re-implementing the Mosaic Law Codes into present society. Still others will speak of kingdom living and kingdom building, that the kingdom is ushered in by naming and claiming the benefits of heaven, that we might live prosperous lives here on earth. So many voices giving so many suggestions as to what it is that we should be doing as we prepare for our Savior's great appearing. Might I suggest that none of these options that I have mentioned get really to the heart of the matter The suggestions that I have mentioned all to one degree or another assume that the kingdom is somehow established through our own labors. But as we see in our passage this morning, there is nothing we can do to hasten or delay the arrival of the king. The question is, how do we make ourselves ready for his return? And I think the answer for us is quite simple. It's, it's this, it's repentance. What does that even mean? What does that look like for the church in this day and age? Well, this morning we're going to give our consideration to the preaching of the last of the Old Testament prophets, that of John the Baptist. So there's two things we need to consider. I think the text breaks up into uh, these two parts. First, we'll consider the manner of the prophet in verses 1 to 6, and then the message of the prophet in verses 7 to 12. So the manner of the prophet and the message of the prophet I think to grasp the significance of John's ministry, we need to remind ourselves of the spiritual state of the people to whom he was sent. In other words, we need to consider what it is we've been looking at over the past few weeks. We've been working our way through Matthew, right? Matthew has painted a very bleak portrait of Israel's spiritual health. As you recall from past weeks, Israel looks just like Egypt of old. A man like Pharaoh sits on the throne. The religious leaders are like the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34, who are now indifferent to the news of the Messiah's coming. As we'll see in the coming weeks, even uh, Satan's own legion of demons have set up shop here in the land. Just as Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, so the people of God have been without a prophetic word for 400 years. I think it's significant that the last of the Old Testament prophets to have spoken was that of Malachi, who had promised that God would one day send a messenger to herald the return of the Lord to his people as he comes to claim his rightful seat of authority on David's throne. One who would come to deliver his people and crush the serpent's head in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, prophecies, hopes, expectations, and dreams. 
And according to Malachi, this messenger would look and sound an awful lot like Elijah himself. Isaiah himself had spoken of this messenger. That the messenger, the harbinger of the Lord, would announce that the Lord would return to His people to inaugurate a new and greater exodus. You read about this in the book of Isaiah, that a highway, this is Isaiah chapter 35, a highway would burst forth in the wilderness, a highway of holiness to our God. And that before this grand exodus, the Lord would send a messenger to proclaim the great deliverance that was about to take place. I think it's rather significant then that John appears on the scene in the wilderness dressed like Elijah, preaching the same message as Elijah. He even comes to the place of Elijah's departure. He comes to the Jordan River. It's a simple message, but one intended to rouse the nation from her spiritual apathy and slumber. And Paul, um, John's message is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You read any of the Gospels, they all attest that this was John's mission and purpose. That he is the promised forerunner of the Messiah, and just as Isaiah had said, and just as Malachi had foretold, his job is preparatory in its nature. To tell the people of God to wake up, the Lord is soon to return The prophet Daniel had spoken of a coming day when God himself would establish not another earthly kingdom, but he would establish an unshakable heavenly kingdom on earth that would outlast the kingdoms of this world. Isaiah himself, as we looked over the past few weeks, who had said that this this king born of a virgin would sit on David's throne and would be had the Spirit fall upon him that he might rule in justice and wisdom, and the nations would come and flow to him to hear his word as he brings salvation and judgment in his hand. So John proclaims the arrival of the heavenly kingdom, quite literally proclaims that the kingdom of the heavens has come near, that the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God himself, is erupting into this present earthly plane. And it will disrupt the kingdoms of men. Are you ready? How do you prepare? Are you ready for the day when David's son will come to claim his rightful inheritance on the throne? You think of the words of Psalm chapter 2, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The Messiah comes in salvation and in judgment. John's message is very simple. Get ready, people. It is time to wake up before it is too late. In the Old Testament, there are plenty of ceremonial washings and baptisms, but John's ministry is something new. His baptism is something different. It's something divinely decreed to John by the Lord to inaugurate. We need to stop and consider the significance of this baptism. What does it depict? In short, we might say it depicts this. It's a picture of the grand exodus of God's people from spiritual enslavement. Think about the prophets of old would preach and the things that they would do. 
So often their message was accompanied by what we might call sign acts, various kind of embodied enactments that would display before the people the very message that they were proclaiming. You think of Isaiah, for instance, who was commanded to preach naked for three years to, as a sign of the judgment that would befall the nations for her sin. You think of Hosea, who was called to marry a prostitute as a picture to the people that signifies God's own relationship with harlot Israel. Well, John is the last of the prophets, so we should not be surprised that his message is accompanied by a significant act, one that he calls the people to partake in as well. Just as Israel of, of old had passed through the waters out of old Egypt in the wilderness, so now Israel will once more pass through the waters of this new Egypt in the wilderness. Remember, Matthew has made it very clear that Israel looks just like Egypt. And so just as Israel of old had to prepare for the coming Exodus, so John the Baptist is coming, giving a message of repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. Just like Israel at the Passover, they must wake up. You know, several years ago, I lived in West Michigan when I did my pastoral internship. There's a very significant kind of Dutch minority population there. And just as I, around the time I'd gotten out there, the king and queen of the Netherlands had come to pay a visit to the people of Western Michigan. It was a, it was a big thing. All over the news, camera crews, uh, two years of preparation for their arrival. Whole gardens erected in their honor, particular monuments built to commemorate this special occasion. Uh, as, as the Dutch uh, are known for their tulips, there were you know, just hundreds of thousands of tulips planted to beautify Grand Rapids. Uh, the people came out in throngs, not just the news, not just the, the political elites, but the people came out and lined the streets of Grand Rapids, dressed in the colors of the king and queen, the House of Orange, wearing orange t-shirts to commemorate that this king and queen have come. Two years of preparation. The Baptist's message here is no different. The king is coming. Wake up. We need to make preparations for his arrival. Remove all the obstacles. Clear the debris. Get your affairs in order. He uses the image of road building as a picture of that preparation. The king is coming along the great highway. We need to make sure the road looks decent. We need to repave the roads. Make sure everything's level. You know, if, 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 if the current president were to, to come out here and say he was going to visit Alsi, the very first thing I think the town of Alsi would say is, well, we need to repave this. Maybe make the roads a little bit straighter. Or else the, the president's going to get car sick. This is John's message. We need to make preparations for the arrival of the Lord. The Lord is coming soon in both salvation and in judgment if you are not ready. So the crowds come out in droves to hear him. Who would see this guy? Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees were told come out to see him. You know, on the one hand, John the Baptist is not a celebrity preacher, not in the sense that we hear the term celebrity preacher these days. I know uh, of a, a former minister who, as part of his uh, financial care, his, um, his pastoral care package, he was given a, a five-figure 
annual clothing allowance for his big ministry to dress flashy. The guy looked like a supermodel. John, it's very clear, is no supermodel. The food and the clothing indicate that. Here's a guy who's dressed like a madman. He's wearing camel hair, a leather belt. What's the big deal? He's eating bugs and honey? That, that, uh, that, that is not Ruth Chris Steakhouse level food there. This is the food of a pauper. You read 2 Kings, this is also the garb of Elijah himself. Here's a man who is unfazed by the trappings of Vanity Fair. He cannot be bought, sold, or swindled. His message for everyone is the same. It's the very thing that's going to cost him his head. Repent and be baptized, for judgment is coming. On the other hand, we can actually say that John the Baptist is something of a celebrity because everybody wants to come out to see this odd duck. You know, if I were to dress like a Civil War general and started shouting at the top of my lungs along 2nd Street uh, beside the river in Corvallis, I could guarantee people probably show up, even if they don't like the message. It'd be quite the spectacle. Perhaps one of the questions they're asking is, why is he dressing up like a Civil War general? The question is, why is it that Elijah, uh, John the Baptist is dressing like Elijah? You read Zechariah chapter 13, you find out that this is the uniform, as it were, of the prophets of old. John the Baptist is bringing into focus something that has been long gone, the absence of the prophetic word. And John the Baptist makes a stir. Here's a man dressed like Elijah, appearing at the Jordan River where Elijah had ascended to heaven. He comes preaching the same message of Elijah. So everybody comes to see and to hear this odd duck. What a strange manner in which he dresses and eats. But it's not just the manner. Here's a man with a message. People come to see him, including the, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, who would not want to come to see such a spectacle. And as he preaches repentance from sin, uh, he does so with a baptism that signifies what it is that they should be doing. Baptism that signifies the coming deliverance from sin's power and the washing away of sin's filth. Isn't that the picture that the Exodus gives the people of God? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, as the people of God were baptized into Moses going through the Red Sea. It's deliverance from Pharaoh's tyranny. Of course, here, this new and greater Pharaoh, this greater enslavement is enslavement to sin. What's striking, though, is that the Pharisees and Sadducees kind of get swept up in this kind of religious revivalism. They come to be baptized as well, but they have no interest in repenting. John the Baptist calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers, you offspring of Satan, We need to remember our broader Old Testament narrative here. What is uh, Israel's history? It is the story of the conflict between the seed of the woman, the promised offspring, and the seed of the serpent. In the Old Testament, the Scriptures typically will tip off the reader in some way as to who the bad guy is. You think of Pharaoh in Ezekiel 29. He's referred to as that great serpent, the dragon. 
Goliath in 1 Samuel 17.5 is one clad in serpentine scales. Here, John the Baptist points out the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, you are offspring of the serpent. You brood of vipers. Jesus gets even more pointed. This isn't just a bare metaphor. As, they, as, as the Pharisees and Sadducees continue to protest, saying, well, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus says, no, your father is the devil. And he's been a liar from the beginning. And you are just like him. John the Baptist calls them out. You brood of vipers who told you about this. Here's a class of men who held to what we might call a rabbit foot religion. They treated faith as a talisman. We've already seen it in Matthew chapter 2, right? It was the job, uh, the duty of the scribes and the priests to teach the scriptures, to, to foster faith into the hearts of the people of God concerning the arrival of the Messiah. And even though they know the birthplace of the Messiah and they hear that the Messiah has been born, what do they do? They do absolutely nothing. Hey, Jesus has been born, he's 10 miles, the Messiah is born, he's 10 miles down the road. I'll let the Magi sort it out. There's, there's a real spiritual apathy going on here. Here are men who are, con, uh, who are content with religion, but they're not content with Christ. What a dangerous place to be in. The prophets of old had condemned such hypocrisy. You read the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 1, where the Lord says, I'm sick of your offerings. Whole body's sick from head to toe. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. I am sick of your sacrifices. You sin and sin and sin and sin, and you think you are safe because you have the temple and you have the sacrificial system. And all you do is when your sins are pointed out, you keep holding up the temple as a rabbit's foot. And you go, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You're treating religion as fire insurance. You've treated redemption as a license to continue reveling in rebellion and treachery. And here we find the religious leaders of the day exemplifying such a spiritual condition, leading the people along the path to hell. They look religious, they put on airs of religiosity, they even come to be baptized, but they have not come to repent. And John is very clear, it is a baptism unto repentance. This outward act signifies the very thing that should be taking place in your heart. Yet they don't think that they need it. What is it that they say? We have Abraham as our father. They think that their own pedigree, that their own bloodline, that their own last name is significant and, 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 and good enough for them to merit the salvation of the Lord when he returns. So John calls them out for their wickedness. Your pedigree is no substitute for repentance. God doesn't need you to fulfill his promises. The Lord made man of the dust of the ground. He can raise up men from stones and give them to Abraham to fulfill God's promises to Abraham. You cannot put God in a chokehold. God is not your lap dog, though you treat him as such. He is not indebted to you. The Lord is not beholden to you. Your social status, your last name, your financial earnings mean nothing in the sight of God. Because God requires one thing. He says, I demand obedience and not sacrifice. What he is looking for is repentant hearts. So John cuts through the fog and he asks them one question. What is it that you are doing to prepare for the Lord's return? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <coughs> Excuse me. 
There's only one thing that the Lord is looking for, and it is repentance. And so we see here in verse 8, John says, okay, you've come to be baptized by me, O Pharisees and Sadducees. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. If this is a baptism to repentance, you need to show some fruit. You need to prove to me that you are truly repentant. Bear fruit in keeping with a repentance. Right? How is it that you can tell that someone is truly sorry, that they have truly repented? Is it just because they said, oh, I'm sorry? I think parents have to deal with this with their kids all the time. Kid gets in trouble, and you say, unless you apologize to your little sister for hitting her, you're going to sit in time out. And then the, the brother says, well, I'm sorry. And then you have to, you have to start probing, asking, well, are you just saying sorry so you don't have to sit in time out? Or do you, are you really starting to see that what you're doing to your sister is harmful? See, there just isn't a, a change of what's coming out of your lips. There needs to be a heart change. There needs to be a change of mind. That's what repentance means, to change one's mind. But with that, moving forward to a change of habit. Genuine sorrow for sin, genuine repentance will elicit a genuine change in behavior. So John is putting the question to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, are you coming out here to repent? Or are you just kind of coming out here so you can get caught up in the latest religious craze? So it looks like you're still kind of with it, so to speak. You need to prove that your repentance is genuine. A repentant heart is going to evidence itself in godly behavior. John's baptism was not a bare sign. Again, it's a baptism with a view towards repentance. The outward act must signify what is going on in the heart. Right? If you plant an apple tree and it never bears any apples, what are you going to do with the tree? You're going to hack it down and you're going to plant a new one. And this is what John is saying to the Pharisees. You, you bear fruit, but if there is no fruit, then the judge of heaven and earth is coming and the axe even now is beginning to be laid to the root of the tree. And if the, the Lord comes and he finds no fruit in your heart, no evidence of repentance in your life, then the only thing you are good for is kindling for an unquenchable fire. Again, John's mission is simple. It's to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Matthew is telling us about the identity of Christ. Yes, he is descended from David, yet at the same time, he is referred to in these scriptural allusions and citations as God himself. One who is both fully God and fully man. And yet John's work as the last of these Old Testament prophets is preparatory. You see here in verses 11 and 12, he contrasts his work with Christ's. He says, my baptism, it's just water. But it's intended to get you ready for the great and true baptism to come. There's one who's coming after me. That, that language of the coming one is a shorthand for the Messiah. There's one who is coming after me, who will baptize not simply with water. He's baptizing with the Spirit and with fire. Two different baptisms. John's baptism was according to the Old Covenant. It's preparatory in nature. It's intended to, uh, for that particular moment in Israel's history to rouse Israel from her slumber. To get her to wake up to see the lethargy and the spiritual apostasy that she finds herself in. 
right? It's different from what we might call Christian baptism, right? John does not baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? You read Acts chapter 19, Paul stumbles across several of John's disciples who have not even heard of the coming of the Spirit. They've been baptized by John, and Paul says, no, 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 I need to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He baptizes them, and then what happens? The Spirit falls upon them. John's baptism is distinct from the baptisms that we see here in church. And yet, at the same time, John's baptism under that old covenant administration still signifies the substance, the reality of what is to come after Christ is raised from the dead and ascended on high. John's baptism foreshadows the very work that Christ would do in his spirit baptism, that he would sanctify his people, and that he would judge the world. So says John, the Messiah holds uh, a greater mystery than the prophet, right? In the ancient world, it's the duty of slaves to carry his master's sandals if the master requires it. And yet John the Baptist says that this coming one is of such great majesty, I'm not even fit to be his slave. So great is the difference between John the Baptist and the Messiah. The Messiah is not simply just another prophet along the way. Here is one who is categorically different. It's very similar to the same type of uh, uh, contrast that we see in Hebrews chapter 3. Moses comes as the great servant of the Lord, the greatest of all the Old Testament saints in one respect. But at the end of the day, he's still just a servant. Christ comes, and he's the Son. He's of a different category altogether. This is the, the category, I think, that, that, that John the Baptist is making here. There's one who is coming who's, who's far different than me. John the Baptist, he's a prophet. But here's one who's coming who, yes, he's a prophet in many ways. But he's the consummate prophet. Not simply another along a long string of prophets. It doesn't go John the Baptist, Jesus, Muhammad, or John the Baptist, Jesus, Joseph Smith. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes and dreams, and there is none greater, and there is none coming to supersede Christ. And here John speaks of Christ's work in an undivided whole. You know, so often the Old Testament prophets will see the, the, the coming of the Messiah. It's, it's kind of like looking out here and you see the, the three sisters' mountains. And you might see uh, some smaller mountains or hills in front of it, and you think, well, there's not much of a gap between there. But then when you're passing over the Santian Pass, you realize it takes about an hour or so to get through it, that there's this large gap. Well, we'll, we'll think of the, the prophets like this. They, they see uh, the, the work that the Messiah brings. They, they see these kind of mountain peaks, and they'll see like one peak here and one peak here, and, and see it as a, a, an undivided whole. And yet when it comes time, when it finally approaches, it actually, there's a distance here. This is what we see with John. He speaks of Christ coming in salvation and the pardon of sin and in final judgment as if it's a single act. But when the New Testament comes, it finds out that Christ's coming comes in two phases. His first advent is in salvation and he will return one day in judgment. But the Old Testament sees it as a single work. So that's why John the Baptist can speak of Christ coming to baptize in the Spirit and also to baptize in fire. As John the Baptist focuses on the work of Christ on the last day, fulfilling the great uh, uh, schematic of Psalm chapter 1. What will happen on the last day? Well, the righteous and the wicked 
will be sifted. The wicked will be scattered like chaff to the wind. Right in, these, uh, in ancient Israel, in these, these storehouses, they'd have these, these big forks, these winnowing forks, and you take the wheat in the barn and you toss it in the air and the wind would blow and scatter the chaff like dust to the wind. And the only thing that would remain is the wheat, which has real substance. John the Baptist says, the one greater than me is coming to do this, to sift between wheat and chaff. And he's going to take the thing, uh, that which is fruitless, that which is barren, that which is useless, and he is going to cast it into the fire. So the question is, are you bearing fruit? It's the question that John puts to the people. It's the question that he puts to the Pharisees. It is the question that he puts to us. Christ comes to baptize in the Spirit and in fire. Why is it that in Acts 2, in Christ, having risen from the dead, ascends to claim uh, the heavenly throne, he pours out his Spirit in fulfillment of the promise uh, of the prophets? The Spirit falls, and what do we see dancing upon the heads of the saints? Fire. Tongues of fire. Why is that the case? It's the very message that we read in the Old Testament of Leviticus, isn't it? How is it that a holy God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people and the people not be consumed in the fire judgment of God Almighty? It's because God has provided a substitute. One who would bear the fires of, ju- uh, of judgment. Jesus talks about later, he'll talk about undergoing a baptism of fire as he bears the curse of wrath for his people so that when the Spirit falls, they are not consumed. But what will be of the people on the last day when Christ comes? And there are people who are found outside of Christ and the fire falls. Will consume them all, an unquenchable fire. I think you'll see that we're in a similar situation uh, uh, today as Israel was in John's day. Uh, John and those around him were awaiting the arrival of Christ. We are awaiting the return of Christ. They were awaiting the inauguration of the kingdom. We are awaiting its consummation. But the message still holds true. What are you doing to prepare for the Lord's return? I think in light of the weightiness of John's message, today's alternatives that we hear seem so trite. Redeeming art? You really, that's what the church would be about? There's nothing the church can redeem. Redemption belongs to Christ and Christ alone. We hear people talk about exercising dominion over creation. Usually in the talk of, of revolutionary politics. You go, really? That's it? You're still too earthly-minded. This is a kingdom that is not of this world. When Christ was raised from the dead, he made it clear that all dominion in heaven and earth was given to him and to him alone. To him alone belongs the glory, the power, the honor, and the dominion. So for us to claim that it's our prerogative, our right to name it and claim it or to exercise some form of dominion, I think really fails to do justice to the honor and the dignity that is afforded Christ and Christ alone as the one who has in fact triumphed over sin and death. I think John helps cut through the fog 
it reminds the church of its present mission. It is simple, simply this, to repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Martin Luther, in his first of the 95 Theses, says that this simple word, repentance, constitutes not just the beginning, but characterizes the whole of the Christian life from start to finish. For any of y'all who know what repentance is like, I don't think anything more true could be said. Because even on the days that we repent, even on our good days, we realize how insufficient our own present repentance is, how much deeper our repentance has to go, because we realize how deeply sin has gotten to the heart of things. You might be sitting here thinking, well, okay, you're preaching repentance, but that's so Old Testament. That is John's message. That was the message of the last of the Old Testament prophets, but Christ has come. He has inaugurated a new and better covenant. We have something much more better than a message of repentance. And yet when we read Matthew 4.17, Matthew 4.23, that is Jesus' message as well. Jesus comes going from town to town proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus commissions his apostles to go proclaim the gospel, he tells them that they are to proclaim this. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. To go and repent. Proclaim a message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message he instructed his disciples to preach uh, here is also the same message he instructs his disciples to proclaim after he has been raised from the dead. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus says that the whole of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, uh, and the Psalms all attest to these two things, that the Messiah must suffer and then enter his glory, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, beginning in Jerusalem. And that becomes the very basis for the book of Acts. And so when we come and examine what is it that we are to be doing, what is the message of the church, the message is this, it is the message of the cross. No more, no less. Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated on earth by his death and resurrection from the dead. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. How is it that we are made partakers of this heavenly kingdom? It is by turning from our sin and turning to our Savior. This has been the church's message from day one, and so it must continue to remain our message until the day of our Savior's grand reappearing. You might now say, okay, well, you've convinced me. Repentance is our message, but what does it mean to repent? And for that, I'd, I'd like to make three closing brief thoughts about the nature of repentance that John the Baptist brings out here in this passage. Three considerations. First, repentance is more than a generic grief. Rather, it consists of confessing particular sins particularly. If you were to read Luke chapter 3, Luke kind of fills out this incident a little more. As John is preaching this, this message of repentance, and the people say, well, what should we do then? John begins to make very particular applications to various groups of people. To the materialist, he says, look, look at all the clothes you got. You need to start sharing with people who don't have any. To the tax collectors, he says what? Stop extorting people. Do your job, collect taxes, but don't do it for profit and gain. To the soldiers, what does he say? Continue doing your work of soldiering, but be content with your wages. John's message is not just a generic 
uh, kind of sense of I should feel bad in a generic way about things that I have done. But it's a particular message of particular repentance. We are called to do the same thing. John gets specific. It's the very thing that we are called to pray in the Lord's Prayer. When we say, forgive us our sins, we're to get specific. It's the reason God gave us the Ten Commandments. It's a grid to evaluate the things that we love, the the things that we do, and the things that we choose. So as you pray daily and you ask and you reflect on uh, your day's actions and and your heart's attitudes and the things that you want to do, you say, "In, in what ways have I coveted today? How have I slandered my brother? What am I doing with the lust that continues to burn and rage in my heart? And then you're given a better, clearer picture of what repentance looks like. It's turning from those things, finding forgiveness in the blood of Christ, and praying that the Lord would strengthen you to turn from those things and to continue and resolve to new obedience day after day after day after day. Second thing is repentance is therefore more than simply saying, I'm sorry. It is a confession of sin, but it's not a bare confession. This isn't just kind of a, uh, kind of a magical incantation you can say so you can go back and return to your pet sins. True repentance requires a change of habit, not just a change of mind. It requires crucifying those sinful desires and reordering those things that we love to align uh, and accord with the things that God loves. 1 Peter 2 will talk about this. He doesn't simply say to drink the spiritual milk of the word, but to long for it. To reorder your appetites, where you, to wean yourself off of the things that you love of earth and begin to love those heavenly things, the true spiritual milk of the word. Of course, we recognize we can't even do these things apart from the Spirit's aid. That's the very reason He has given us a Spirit. It's the very reason Christ has come. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins. And so the very things that God requires, which is repentance, he provides in the giving of his spirit. So great is the grace of our Savior. Third thing to consider is this, that repentance is more than going through the motions. How easy is it to treat faith like a rabbit's foot? To say, I'll just sin now, ask forgiveness later. It's not true repentance. As John says, Bear fruit that accords with repentance. What is it that the Spirit is looking for? What evidence is a true and godly repentance? We did a sermon series on that last summer, right? That's the very thing that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. The fruit produced by the Spirit is what? It is love, it's joy, peace, patience, it's kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there is no law against such things. These things are not against the law. These are the fruit that the Spirit loves. These are the habits that we ought to love. These are the things that the Lord is looking for on the day of His return. And if He comes and He finds us uh, bereft of any fruit, we're good for nothing but kindling. And so we have to examine ourselves, not a morbidly, uh, a morbid sense, but just a real honest assessment. Am I bearing fruit? Not to trust in your own works, but to see, is there evidence that the Spirit is at work in my heart? The good news is that even our best repentance and our best days are insufficient. And yet what Christ requires, He provides. He has given us His Spirit. And, and so as you examine your heart, I don't want you to, to, to kind of fall into kind of morbid self-introspection and say, well, I don't see any fruit, therefore there's nothing to do. I could do nothing but weep in despair. 
If you, if you ex- in examining your heart, you find yourself bereft of, of fruit, the solution is to pray, to say to the Lord, Lord, I can't even repent apart from your Spirit's work. Please help. And the Lord delights to answer prayers like that. So great is the grace of this kingdom that has infiltrated earth. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you'd bless your word and bless us, uh, that we might be diligent uh, to respond with uh, a true and godly repentance. We ask that this repentance would bear fruit unto righteousness and godliness. Uh, Please use this message to to rouse us from our apathy, that we might uh, be ready for the day of your Son's appearing. We ask in Christ's name, amen.